What's up everybody, Michael Ninja's back at it again. You know how I like to do it. Press record and speak what's on my mind. How y'all doing today, people? I hope you're blessed. I hope you're being a blessing to someone in need. Be perhaps a different type of... Good Friday lecture a class from what many of you are accustomed to experiencing. This is a teaching church. As a matter of fact, I think of this church itself as a school because this is really what it is. Here we call our philosophy the science of living. We don't have a dogma but rather philosophy, the science of living, which sometimes I more correctly call the science of self-awareness. And I love to do the introductory statement on this. Science, from the original Greek word, ginoskai, meaning to know. So then the science of living meaning to know how to live. This is very important. You know, it's quite a sad thing to go all the way through this segment of life on earth without ever learning how to live. And too many people are doing just that, going all the way through this earth experience without ever really learning how to live, without learning really who they are. I had a very interesting three and three-quarter hours last Saturday night in Beverly Hills with a group of medical doctors of various specialties, psychiatrists among them, educators and attorneys. One gentleman there was in charge of the educational system for a large city that I will not name. And we were talking about the importance of people coming to know themselves. So this outstanding educator went so far as to say that in school, when kids have problems, even with their spelling, it relates to their self-knowledge, to their self-image. And I found that very interesting. Now this evening, our formal subject is the glory of the cross. And I'd like to read a text to you from the sixth chapter of Romans, the sixth and seventh verses. And now that you're all comfortably seated, we're going to stand and read this together for emphasis. I may put you through different changes here from what you're accustomed to, either in church or in class, but there's a reason for that also. I'm always aware of the fact that we are working with the subconscious mind, educating it and re-educating it conditioning it and reconditioning it. And you see, when you stood up, your subconscious mind also came to a new point of attention because it knows that it's about to hear something important. And so now, from the sixth chapter of the book of Romans, the sixth verse, and I'm going to have you repeat this after me as I shall pause for emphasis. 
Our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. And we're going to read that once more for emphasis. Our old man is crucified with him. That the body of sin might be destroyed. All right, you may be seated. This evening we're talking about the glory of the cross. Most of us have heard about the old rugged cross. I remember when I was growing up, my mother would sing about the old rugged cross. One line says, I will cling to the old rugged cross. And as you've heard me say before, I clung to the old rugged cross and it kept getting more rugged every day. But then I remembered that that was not the end of that stanza. That was not the end of that sentence in the song. But the song goes on to say, not only I will cling to the old rugged cross, but, and exchange it someday for a crown. And that's where I saw the light. I said, aha. There is a point in my experience where I am to exchange this rugged cross, this heavy cross, this burdensome cross for a crown. It says someday, so that leaves it up to me to choose which day. And I choose this day. Growing up in Christianity, I always thought also that people made Good Friday too much of a day of doleful mourning. There was too much of this weeping around the cross. And so I began to search for some greater meanings to the event which we call the crucifixion. And I'm going to share with you now some of my interpretations. The glory of the cross is that it symbolizes the crossing out of negative self-identity. And I'm going to have you write this statement. The glory of the cross is that it symbolizes the crossing out of negative self-identity. I want to be repetitious on this and have you repeat this phrase after me. The crossing out of negative self-identity. And when we say crossing out, I'm going to have you make the sign of the cross so that you will now come to a new understanding of what it's all about. Come on. The crossing out of negative self-identity. Once again, with the sign of the cross, the phrase that I've just given you. Come on. The crossing out of negative self-identity. And here now is another statement that I wish you to write. 
Negative self-identity must die that we might live. You see, already you're coming to a greater understanding of the crucifixion. And in the crucifixion, correctly understood, it is negative self-identity that dies that we, must, that we might live. Negative self-identity must die that we might live. Repeat that with me. Negative self-identity must die that we might live. Now that's the truest and a greater meaning of the old Christian statement, he died that we might live. What is the he that must die? Negative self-identity must die that we might live. You see, a person cannot live abundantly unless negative self-identity dies. Let's take this from the point of poverty for a moment. The poverty self-identity in the mind of an individual must die that the person might prosper. The failure self-identity must die that the person might succeed. The sad self-identity must die that the person might live happily. Now what of some of these negative self-identities which must die in order that we might live? I just named some of them after a certain fashion. Some people have, for example, a sick self-identity. And the sick self-identity must die that we might live in health. And to give you an example of a person with a sick self-identity, I point out to you again the man at the pool who waited for the troubling of the water that he might get into it and be healed. I just love to use him for an example, and, and quite often I do. You remember the Bible tells us that there was a pool of water in Jerusalem by the temple where the sick and the maim and the halt would congregate because at a certain season an angel would come down from heaven and trouble the water and whoever stepped in first after the water was troubled or blessed by the angel would be healed. And there was a man lying by this pool waiting for the troubling of the water but before the water was troubled or blessed Jesus came by. And Jesus said to this man, do you want to be made whole? Do you want to be well? And you notice that right away the man didn't, didn't even say, yes, I would like to be healed. Yes, I would like to be well. But the first thing that he said when he opened his mouth was, well, you know, I've been here 38 years sick. <laughs> That's a dead giveaway. That man had, what, a sick self-identity. Can you imagine this? Here is Jesus himself walking by the pool saying to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? As a matter of fact, he was rather comfortable in his sickness. He was rather smug and snug in his sick self-identity. And he had given himself over to such a a chronic case of sick self-identity that the idea of being well, being whole, being healed didn't even faze him. He'd rather make an excuse and stay sick. 
Now, it sounds like I'm describing some people you know, doesn't it? <laughs> you see, sometimes it's so convenient just to be sick and have that disability and collect checks from it. Mailman comes to your house the first day of every month. Brings that check. All you have to do is lay there and groan. <laughs> Grunt. Complain. And keep your soaks, your and keep your sick self-identity. Fortunately, Jesus, being a master of mind science and spiritual technology, understood what to do. And spoke to the man with the speed of lightning. The word of command, take up your bed and walk. Right in the middle of his complaint, take up your bed and walk. It kind of shocked his subconscious sick image. Before it could complain again, the man was on his feet walking. Beware of developing a sick self-identity. And if you've had a certain complaint so long, that you've developed a sick self-identity, that sick self-identity must die in order that you might live in health. Now, let us consider for a moment those who may be suffering from a sad self-identity. I'm sure that we all can think of someone that we've encountered at some point in time and space who make a career out of being miserable. <laughs> and not only do they make a career out of being miserable, they try to make other people miserable with them and if you will not be miserable with them, you're not their friend. people may be blood relatives. <laughs> I know someone who told me once, Reverend Ike, you've been telling us to take vacations so that we could visit went into different parts of the world and different parts of the country, and I decided I'd like to go back home to see my old uncles and aunties and my family. But I just remember that I've got some of them down there every time I see them. All they do is complain. And she said, so I've decided when I go on my vacations and to visit that I'm not going to visit them. You know, you have to be very careful of people who have chronic sad self-identity and this is why I've given you these words for your guidelines always in your heart say to people if you won't let me pull you up I'm not going to let you pull me down if you're not going to let me share my joy with you I'm not going to let you make me miserable interested in sadness. I'm not interested in the blues. This should be your attitude. And there does come a point when you just release people after you have tried to share your joy with them. 
you've tried to share your good with them and they don't accept it, then that's a point for you to just ease on down the road. But if you truly want to be happy, then the sad self-identity must die that you might live in happiness. Just as the scripture we just read stated, our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed. And the old man is that old sad self-identity, that old sick self-identity, that old failure self-identity must be crucified, must die that you might live. Another thing. Some people with these sad self-identities seem to think somehow or the other that perhaps there's some kind of virtue, a holiness in being sad. Some people seem to think that they can't serve God if they're too happy. Some people think it's a sin to be too happy. Oh, how can you be so happy when there are millions starving? How can you enjoy your food when other people don't have any? Well, hell, if I starved, it wouldn't help them. <laughs> it would just be another starving person in the world. Wouldn't, star wouldn't solve a damn thing. Excuse me, sir. You do not help to cheer people up by being sad. Even in the Old Testament, we are told the joy of the Lord is your strength. And it is important that every day of your life, you feel and practice the joy of the Lord. Away with sadness, away with the blues, away with unhappiness. As a matter of fact, Medical authorities now tell us that perhaps the greatest illness in the whole world that causes other illnesses is depression. It is unhealthy to be depressed. It is unhealthy to be sad. It is unhealthy to be unhappy. Remember that. The sad self-identity must die that you might live and experience the joy of the Lord. The hateful self might die, must die that you might live in love. And here again, they are those people who hang on to their hatred with all their might. And I know some of you are saying, oh, but Reverend, I, I don't hate anybody. I don't have any hatred. Maybe not, but some of you are hanging on to hatred. <laughs> you know, I told you about that in that sermon, Forgive and Forget. And hatred is just as bad as hatred. They both will do you in. 
You must die to hatred and to hatred that you might live the abundant life. So if you're still hurting over something that somebody did to you, you'd better get that cleared out of your mind that you might experience the love of God. Some of you may have had some bad experiences with people and you're, you're full of fear so that you're like David was at one point where he expressed himself and he said, I said in my haste, all men are liars. And there's too much of that attitude sometimes. People will say, hey, nobody's no good. And if you feel that way that nobody's no good, it's because you're no good. <laughs> Here again, I quote Reverend Ike's celebrated lecture. I meet no one but me. And I'll tell you, it is a danger signal when you get to the point that you actually feel that nobody's any good. You are in trouble. <laughs> but yet there are people who are totally bitter like that. Nobody's any good. Everybody's dishonest. Everybody's out to get you. Well, that's why they get you. <laughs> so why complain? <laughs> you see, so many times people think and speak these things on themselves, and when they happen, they wonder why. And honestly, if, if you have that kind of unloving attitude and belief in your heart that nobody's any good, you are really in trouble because you're going to draw people to you that are going to do you in because you believe that, you see. All right. That self-identity of hate and of hurt must die that you might live in the experience of love. Now, there are those people who have a self-identity of failure. Psychiatrists would perhaps call it a failure pattern. Like I had one man say to me, and he was a minister. He said, everything that I touch turns to mud. said, hi, in the name of God, can this man call himself a preacher? Now that is an acute failure pattern. One old fellow in the South said, Reverend, I, I've been sucking this seed a long time and I ain't succeed yet. <laughs> You know that's a failure pattern. But this failure self-identity must die. It must die out of your mind that you might live and experience success. And again, too many people have a poverty self-identity. And I'm going to say something here and I'm going to say it from my heart. I hope it will do some good and I know it will do some good. 
It's against all that the uppity sociologists and militants tell us, but it's a psychological truth that must be faced and understood. Too much of this poverty business and poverty condition has been carried on among minority people. Many times the people who claim to be the leaders among minority people are the very ones who are grinding the poverty idea into the minds of minority people. Amen. Stop telling people are giving the idea that if you are black, you must be poor. That if you're black, you must be underprivileged. You must be socially deprived. Stop giving people the idea that just because they're black, the whole world is against them. It's not the color of your skin, it's the color of your mind. And that poverty self-image must die that you might live and experience prosperity. One of the most inspiring men that I've ever met, and I was inspired by him before I met him, is a black man in Birmingham, Alabama, A.G. Gaston, a few months ago. Must be some Alabama people here. A few months ago, it was my privilege to go to Birmingham to be the keynote speaker for a statewide A.G. Gaston Day, honoring A.G. Gaston. Here's a black man in his 70s who has, who lived in Alabama in Birmingham among the Ku Klux Klan when it was dangerous to be black. <laughs> He identified himself with those who were successful and saw himself as one of them. That was a very interesting experience in Birmingham, too. Very interesting. When I was there, I remember that they sent a police escort for me. that escorted me through the city with sirens blowing. A few years ago, it would have been for a different purpose. It would have been probably not to an old rugged cross, but to an old flaming cross. It was really an interesting experience. They met me in Birmingham at the airport in two of the church's Rolls Royces. 
soon as I got to the hotel, I got reports from the Alabama State Patrol. You see, the people, my people who were driving my car did not know it, but they were in, they were under sur radar surveillance all the way through Alabama. They were speeding, and I knew how fast they were going. I got reports. <laughs> of course, I'm kept under surveillance anyway. I mean, in any man who's going to tell people, a man is dangerous when he tells people you can be what you want to be and do what you want to do and have what you want to have. That's a dangerous man. You got to watch him. Because before you know it, somebody will believe it. Because very frankly, you know, it isn't all that popular for the average black, so-called black preacher to tell folks, look, you know, your blackness does not have to be a handicap. And I keep telling you that. As a matter of fact, I tell you that blackness is no excuse for failure. And I'll tell you, when you believe in yourself and overcome, sometimes even the very people and the very apparent forces that try to keep you down, they'll honor you. That day in, in Alabama, A.G. Gaston was honored by the governor of that state, who a few years ago stood in the schoolhouse door to block black students. Somebody shout hallelujah. I was there to witness it and to keynote it. I'm talking about A.G. Gaston, and I, I used for the subject of that keynote speech that night, the gospel according to A.G. Gaston. And I'm talking about him because this man is a fantastic example of a success self-image. Born in the condition of black poverty and discrimination, he died to the idea that he would have to be poor because he was black. It became a great success. There's no virtue in poverty, so let that idea die out of your mind. And let's not give minority people the idea that being poor is something to be proud of, to wear on your lapel and stick your chest out about it and say, we are poor people. That's <laughs> why so you'd never get me in any poor people's march. You'll never get me in any poor people's nothing. I've been there and I'm glad I'm out. When I went to Chicago this past summer, some, some black uh, militants came to me and said, Reverend Ike, we'd like to take you on a tour of the black ghetto and show you how, how these poor black people live. I said, what the hell are you talking about? Show me how they live? You don't need to show me how they live. I came to 
show them how to get out of the ghetto into the ghetto. That poverty self-image must die. It must be crossed out that we might live. Cross out the sick self-image. Cross out the poverty self-image. Cross out the hateful self-image. Cross out the failure self-image. Cross out the poverty self-image that you might have life and that more abundantly. Thank you.